Tyler O'Reilly here. Before we start, just wanted to remind everyone of Bazaar Plus, our membership program where you can get extra episodes every week. Just simply go to the link in the show notes. It's Sports Bazaar. A trophy called the America's Cup. Come and get it. Come and get if it. If you think you're good enough. The hunt for the weirdest. It sounds like you're not doing your research. It does sound like that. <laughs> the problem is I have done it and don't understand <laughs> it. Strangers. Designed this ship to comfortably house a cow. Oh, stop it. Cow out the back. Most unbelievable. They launch him across the street by spraying him with the high-pressure hose. Stories to ever occur. Listed in the Guinness Book of World Records for the greatest ever photo. In the world of sport. He actually popularised Gordon as a first name. Which is a tough job. Tough. Sports <laughs> Bizarre. Cavalcade of disgruntled contenders. When the boat sailed, the crew was still nailing down her deck. Feels like it's almost time for a rule change. <laughs> the monkey called Peggy knew how to sail. Pirates. Are they pirates? We're getting to... Oh, jeez. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. This is a spa meeting, Mick. Grab your togs. It's Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Welcome to the latest episode of Sports Bazaar with myself, Mick Malloy. And as always, doing the heavy lifting in this epic series on the America's Cup, yes. it's Titus O'Reilly. Well, thank you. Where we left off. Where were we now? I, I know. It's, it's an epic we're going through. Sure the Scots is. had challenged. You might remember the, oh, Scot- of course. the Scots had yeah. had a challenge and they had been beaten off by the Americans. The Americans were not thrilled by it at all and they'd had a bit of a hissy fit. Yep. And they'd change the deed of gift again, the again. rules again to say you got to get to the America's Cup. The ship racing in it has to get there on yeah. its own. They'd sort of put in some of these rules. That's so right. All, That's terrible. Now, and who's the bloke who's – George Shiler, the guy that changes the right. deed. He's passed away now. Oh, good So Lord. they can't go back to him. So can they no longer change the deed? You have to go to the Supreme Court oh, of so it's New in the York courts. We're now in the if courts. you need to do this. This is the point where – so the time frame, just to anchor us in where we are, Yeah. this is sort of around the 1890s. So America is in what it's called the Gilded Age. This is after the Civil War and Reconstruction. This is where big money comes in around yeah. Standard Oil, railways. You're getting these incredibly rich plutocrats. Yes. So this is like the Elon Musks, the Zuckerbergs. The big industrialists. The big industrialists, but on a scale as rich as those guys yeah. are now, yeah. right? So this is before America then breaks up a lot of those Who big Standard companies. Oil? Well, Standard Oil, well, this is where you we're exactly going. prepared no. For my questions. <laughs> once again. Someone hasn't done their homework. Once again, I've come in half-assed it again. That's all right. I'll, don't worry. I'll clear it up later. Yeah, you just, yeah. You just bat on. All right. Well, as our members know, listen to the bonus episodes, and if you're not a member, oh. sign up. We fact-check Mick's claims regularly, and he's currently batting 50-50. Which is pretty good. Which everyone in the office is shocked. It's, it's surprised. And some of the ones you've been very good on, they've been good yeah. facts. So if you're not a member, sign up to that, and you'll hear Mick's fact-checks because they are spot on. <laughs> now, so this right. is the eight, Gilded Age. So much money is coming into yep. America. And so the New York Yacht Club is being run by these huge names. So the first one is J.P. Morgan, John Pierpoint Morgan. J.P. Morgan, the bank you'd have heard of. Everyone knows about him. He's still around. He was a financier and investment bank. He dominated corporate finance on Wall Street at this period. He was like, you know, think very much the Mark Zuckerberg sort of power level, right? You know, the Jeff Bezos level of money. 
he could influence whole yeah. elections, everything around. Was right. he one who famously got everyone in a room together and locked them in until they came to a, a resolution? Yes, there was he some would huge... do that around saving. He few times saved the, the banking economy. system. Of, uh, now, he was also the one, to your point about US Steel and all this, he was the architect behind this industrial consolidation, which is getting multiple smaller companies together, yes. turning them into these giant, almost yeah. multinational type. It became a thing, really, didn't it? Yeah, so he did ones over the course of it. He put together US Steel. Yes. As you raised. International Harvester, which was a huge farming conglomerate. Um, And General Electric, GE, which is still around to this day in various forms. So he he was the one that put together all of those. He also owned a bunch of other businesses like Western Union, um, 21 railroads he owned in America. (laughs) So this guy is like, think just money just being printed off. You know the smart guy, I reckon, in in all that? The guy who watched everyone running the railways and went, they're going to need barrels. Yeah. And the guy, I forget his name, but he goes, he just bought every barrel in America. Yeah. And he became just as important to the guy running the train stations as the trains. Yeah. Because he had nothing. It's like owning the software during the computer age where you go, well, how are you going to deliver? Yeah, exactly. That's what Gates did, right? That's what Gates did. Working for IBM. Someone else and went. Yeah. Do you guys just, if you just sign this, (laughs) just allow me to control the old. uh, Software and uh, it I'll, away. I'll go on my way. Yeah. Just slip that under the uh, nose. I know. Man. It's these guys were just operating on another level. So this is like Wild West for the big industrialists. Yeah. You know? So JP Morgan's become the Commodore of the New York Yacht Club. Of so he is. he is the he's running this now. And all their other clubs. I love the way they just start their own clubs. Oh, yeah, and he is funding these this is getting to the point with these plutocrats involved. It's a challenge for the America's Cup. You have to be amongst the the one percenters. Yeah. You know, you have to be that rich. It's a bit like space flight now. You know, you got Branson and <laughs> Musk and everyone going. We're all going to yeah. Bezos. All going. We're going to own a space company. Yes. This was like the equivalent of that in the eighteen nineties, yeah. right? You didn't buy a spaceship. You bought a yacht. You bought a yacht that and you cost like it. ten million dollar yacht. You know, sort of thing. That was the dick swinging competition that of was. the day. That was right. You know. <laughs> so some of the other things he did is he financed the formation of a company called the International Mercantile Marine Company. It was an Atlantic shipping company which has bought up several American and British lines. Yes. And J.P. Morgan, one of their sub-lines was a line called the White Star Line, uh-huh. which ran as one of its major ships, the RMS Titanic. Okay. And J.P. Morgan had a private suite on the Titanic what and did- was meant to be on it. The voyage where it sunk. So is this spoiler those, alert for anyone who hasn't seen the movie? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't. Thanks a lot. Oh, I just ruined the movie. Thanks for a people. lot. Quick sidebar: Do you know I got kicked out of a screening of the Titanic? This is a true story. This is high. Once again, your stories are so. You always put the premise to me, like Titus. You will not believe this, and I'm like. I would be shocked if you told me you'd sat through the Titanic. <laughs> How I, did you get kicked out? I went with my girlfriend to a screening in Newcastle. It was at the height of Titanic mania. Yeah. We were there. I'm watching it. We were about 40 minutes in and I was super bored. And I just <laughs> stood up and shouted out, oh, bring on the iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone got very huffy in the cinema. Including your girlfriend. Including my girlfriend. And I got tasked to leave. And it was a win-win. I got cheered on the way out for leaving. It's good riddance, and and you got to leave, and I got to leave. 
You're still the kid that wants to get out of class so does something to get kicked out. You're still the kid. It's like all these signs so the, later. What you're saying though, that, now this is a famous conspiracy theory surrounding the Titanic, isn't it? That he didn't get on it so he killed every other rich man in America. Like a lot of competition. All the competition. He said, here you go. Oh, actually, I'm not going to make it. Bang. Hey, knock this not into this an iceberg. A, sort of a Putin-esque <laughs> Kind of uh, business strategy. Now, there's been a few things said about Putin, and I just want to say it's a bit of a pylon. There's no, <laughs> there's no evidence that he had anything to do with the Wagner death. Oh, yeah, no evidence uh, whatsoever. Mate, there's an explosion on the plane. The plane went down. <laughs> now, so, yeah, it's been a big conspiracy theory on the internet. So the thing about uh, Morgan, so he, it was a financial disaster for his company, the Titanic sinking. Yeah. But he was so rich he could wear that. Now, a well-known quote that you would have heard before but is actually attributed to Morgan, yes. um, or people don't realise it is, is when people say, if you have to ask the price, you can't afford it. I know that. Is that, that his? That's his, and it's about the cost of maintaining a yacht. Someone once said, how much does it cost you to maintain yeah. all these yachts? He said, if you have to ask the price, you can't, you can't afford, afford it. it. So that's where that quote There's comes There's a lot from. of good stuff about yachts. Your second favourite day is the day... You buy a yacht, your favourite day is the day you sell it. You sell is that it. a good one? That's the one you've always be friends with someone who owns a boat, don't own a boat. <laughs> there's, it's like there's a certain things in life that you don't want to own, you want a friend to own it, but you can then use it. So that's amazing. That was his quote. That was his quote. In the 1890s, the club's headquarters was so overcrowded he just bought land for a new clubhouse on 44th Street where it is to this day, and that's where famously the America's Cup sat for years in their map, famous map room, yeah. screwed to bolted. the bolted to the floor. So he paid How for that. Arrogant. But he just paid for it. He just said, yep, I'll just buy you this land in 44th Street. And it's this amazing building that looks like a ship on the outside. It's all nautical themes <laughs> and it's amazing. So he did that. Now, the other people that are currently funding these challenges with him and running the New York Yacht Club... William K. Vanderbilt, he was the grandson of Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt, who was the biggest, richest guy in America. So he was heir to the biggest fortune. So he ran a lot of shipping, a lot of ferries, things like that around New York. That's what I would like to be. He inherited 55, this is William K. Vanderbilt from his um, grandfather, Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt. He inherited $55 million in 1890, which is the equivalent today of 1.8 billion US. Oh, man. So imagine just inheriting that one day. <laughs> so that's um, I'd rather inherit than build it. Yeah, that's I'd another episode. I'd love to be in the inheritance business. There are some people I know who are in that job. Idle rich. The idle that's rich. That's me. Oh, you and I could do yeah, idle rich. I could do yeah. that. Yeah, people go, I'd be boring. Go, yeah, we'll watch oh, this space. <laughs> You'd be bunker spreckles. You'd be dead in a week. <laughs> it would not, seriously. And all my money would be in a cave. <laughs> now, um, he, with his money, when he inherited this $1.8 billion, he took over, he bought from P.T. Barnum the Great Roman Hippodrome in um, in the New York and turned it and renamed it Madison, Madison Square, Square Garden. Garden. Oh. So he was the very first one. Another guy who was in this running the New York Yacht Club is a guy called August Belmont Sr. He's an interesting guy. He was German and he worked for the Rothschilds, you know, huge banking and financing yes. group in Europe. And one day when they were a bit worried because the Spanish Empire was sort of falling apart over in South and Central America yes. and they had a lot of investments there, they said, go to Cuba, 
We want you to go look after all our investments over there and check on them, right? Yeah. So he goes over there and his whole plan's got to Cuba, then South America and look after the Rothschilds business. He gets there in New York and he finds that he has to postpone it because Rothschild's New York branch had collapsed. It means there was a panic on at the time. This is the one JP Morgan's trying to fix. Right. So he makes an executive decision because this is you can't just quickly ring someone. No. This is like you've got to send a ship. So he makes an executive decision. I'll stay in New York and fix it, this problem here. Yep. This is where I'm needed. The Rothschilds later on tick off that this was a good idea. But he basically rescues it and builds the American business into this huge thing and he eventually goes out on his own. The Belmont Stakes is named after him, oh, which is go. one of the tr- racing's triple crown in America. You have to win the Belmont Stakes. Shut the first named after him. Yeah, and he's named after him just outside New York City. Now, he ran a lot of these things with one of his closest friends, Leonard Jerome, who was the maternal grandfather of Winston Churchill. So there's all this caught up with. <laughs> it's all happening. Yeah. So while they're all doing this, they're the rich. On the English side, they need someone rich to come and challenge. Yes. And so the Earl of Dunraven, Thomas Wyndham Quinn, the fourth Earl of Dunraven, he steps up to the plate. Now, he's bought into extreme wealth. So he's a wealthy guy but bored. Yeah. This is where the trouble starts. Yeah, he's looking for, for fun. So he was serving as a lieutenant in the First Lifeguards, a cavalry regiment. He then became, at age 26, a war correspondent for the Daily Telegraph. Yep. Because he was bored. Then he got sick about riding that war, so he recruited two regiments of sharpshooters for the Boer War that led <laughs> them into battle. Yeah. He then a big game hunter. In 1974, he went over to Colorado and he just bought 15,000 acres so he could go hunting in America. <laughs> But hunting whatever happened to be on the property at the time. Yeah, buffalo and wolves and all sorts of stuff. Then bears, all sorts of stuff. He eventually just got rid of the land because he was sick of settlers kept coming and settling on the land when he wasn't there. So he'd come back and there was a whole like new homestead and stuff like that. Could have just shot them. He could have. He also was a politician, but he co-authored a book on spiritualism, which is all about you know, talking to dead people, seances, all this sort of stuff. I did not see that coming. Now, this book, and this kind of comes up where the Americans in the end don't really like this guy, it had strong homoerotic overtones, including references of relationship with a guy called Daniel Douglas Home. Now, Daniel Home was a Scottish medium who had the ability to levitate Speak with the dead. Where and, are we? And he could produce rapping and knocks on houses at will, apparently. Um, he's one of the most famous men of his era. Okay. So when the Earl of Dunraven starts writing these things about him and home sleeping in the same bed together and all this. Are they biographical? Or? Yes. These in his, they found out later in his diaries that they had some sort of relationship. Now, this was kind of frowned upon at the time, right? Hmm. Um Harry Houdini said of home, he was one of the most conspicuous and lauded of his type of generation and he was the forerunner of the mediums whose forte is fleecing by presuming on the credulity of the public. <laughs> so Harry Houdini didn't like oh, that's him. that's a stinging review. Yeah. What a rebuke. When Harry Houdini's not a fan. Yeah, nah. Earl of Dunraven, he's incredibly rich. So he has these enormous lands all over the place in Wales and Scotland and all the coal mines. He owns sure. all of them. So he's, he's got more money, so he can challenge. He owned a bunch of racehorses with Lord Randolph Churchill, which is Churchill's yep. father. So all, Churchill's in the middle of all of these people, sure. right? 1893, Dunraven issues a challenge. He'd built a ship called Valkyrie 2. 
to challenge. This is an interesting one because the Americans in response build a boat called Vigilant as the defender. And this is when the America's Cup goes from all these ships before. You remember we had the one with the fireplace and the monkey on it and all this, you know. These were leisure. They were proper ships. Candelabras. Yeah. So people were building ships for cruising and then racing those ships. Racing them as an afterthought. Now this is the first time with Vigilant and Valkyrie 2 where people are starting to go, let's build a ship. It's purely for racing. So Vigilant was a massive departure from all the previous ones. She had bronze instruments everywhere. Everything was not worried too much about whether it could make a trip anywhere across the Atlantic or anything. It was built just for the race. Yes. So it didn't have like a kitchen downstairs. It didn't have beds. (laughs) It didn't have all the – so they're starting to go this way. A moose head over the fire. So these ships suddenly are very expensive. They're very big. To give you an idea, unlike you'd see America's Cups boats now, which might have six to eight people on them. Yeah. These boats, to give you an idea of how big, Vigilant, the Defender, it would have up to 60 men on the boat all on one side. Crew. Crew, just all there to keep it balanced. On You know, they run from one side yeah. of the ship to the other. So these aren't these small boats. These are massive boats, right, powerful big boats, and they're costing a fortune. Wow. They, and then after the race, they're almost useless. Yeah. They can't be used for cruising or anything. So you have to have enormous amounts of money sure. to race it. So this all happens now. The Americans win this race. It's very close, but they win all three races. But some of them are like by about 40 seconds. So it's it's close. Yeah. Lord Dunraven returned two years later in 1895 with the Valkyrie 3 and they built another ship, the Americans 2. And this was an incredibly famous ship called the Defender, the Americans. And it was so built just for racing that, it only lasted six years after the race, even though it was rebuilt one time, because it corroded. It wasn't built to last. It was just purely like a racing, yeah. like a race car would sure. be. You can't can't take an F1 car and then just drive it as your daily commute. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that. Yeah. So this race between um, the Valkyrie 3 and the Defender, this is where it starts to become the animosity grows with the Earl of Dunraven. So... The Defender wins the first one, although the Earl of Dunraven accuses the Americans of cheating. He says, you weighed the boats because you have to have all these, meet all these criteria. Yes. And he accuses them of overnight sneaking in and putting more ballast in their ship so oh, it can wow. ride low in the water and have more stability secretly overnight. Yeah. And he accuses them of this and says they're basically cheating. He does this in private, writes yes. a letter. They go and weigh both boats and check them and say it's no different. In the second race, the Defender wins, the American race wins, and the British yacht, Valkyrie 3, it's been disqualified for getting in the way. So there's a point where they're meant to give way and they don't. So it's disqualified anyway. The Lord of Dunraven says, well, the only reason I had to almost hit the other boat was because you've got these enormous fleets coming out of spectators and they're getting in my way. And they're purposely getting in my way. Is there merit to this claim? I think there's a lot of merit. He wrote to them and said, Today on the reach home, on the way home, eight or nine steamers crossed my bow, several were to the windward of me. And what was worse is a block of steamers was steaming level with me and close under my lee. I sailed nearly the whole distance in tumbling broken water in the heavy wash of these steamers. So he was just saying, This is absurd. You know, yeah. you're not controlling these ships. It's not like now where they're all kept away. 
they're purposely getting in yeah. my way, making the water hard, but they're not doing it to your boat. Sure. So it gets to the third race, and this will be the deciding one if the Americans can win. It'll be three it's, now. It's over. It's over. The Valkyrie 3 comes out, but he's not got the proper sails up, is not competing at before what? the race starts. You know how they sort of compete before yeah, they get to the start? Yeah, yeah, like a bit of jousting. Jousting to get in the right spot. And it becomes very obvious that his whole plan is just to come out and then in a fit of peak just quit. Tank? Or just quit. He doesn't. So the starting gun goes Jesus. and he just doesn't. He's cracked it. He cracks it and leaves, right? And they are all like in shock that he's done this. Um, and so they can't believe it. It's just this bizarrest moment in America's Cup history where someone just basically goes, yeah. stuff yeah. So Lord Dunraven <laughs> goes back to England and writes an article in the London Field magazine, one of our favourite publications. And he writes publicly now an accusation that the defender had been cheating, that they had moved ballast in overnight, the ship was lower in the water, or he actually publicly makes the whole thing. There's a cavalcade of disgruntled contenders. There is heaps of disgruntled. And they always seem shocked that they get accused. Yeah, absolutely shocked. So this creates huge issues between England and America, as you can imagine, uh, the British and the Americans. They're, they're furious. The New York Yacht Club, of course, respond to this. They <laughs> yes. say, we've investigated this and everything the Lord of Dunraven said is untrue. Right. And they say, the Earl of Dunraven, an honorary member of the club, has publicly charged foul play on the part of the defender. Lord Dunraven, by this course has forfeited the high esteem <laughs> which led to his election as an honorary member of the, this club. Therefore, it is resolved that the privileges of honorary membership heretofore extended to the Earl of Dunraven are hereby withdrawn. Wow. And that his name be removed from the list of honorary members of the club. Sheesh. So he goes off. Now, even in England, people kind of, because of the Lord Dunraven sort of, you know, yeah. spirituality book and his right. homoerotic overtones yes. and they see him as a bit of an odd guy, they don't really stick up for him. They don't throw their full weight behind, behind him. him. And so he sort of never challenges again. Interestingly, several decades later, yeah. right, we only know this yes. looking back but we didn't know at the time and too late for anyone to ever really know it at the, of the people involved when they all have done Ravens passed away and everything. Evidence comes to light that suggests Dunraven was right about part of this overall. The American yacht, the Defender, had a top-secret inflatable bladder in its rudder. (laughs) It was operated by a dedicated crewman by the name of Ed Wood who was sworn to secrecy and kept it far away from the inquest. Is this some kind of freedom of information? It was a floodable ballast that became common later in racing yachts, but the time was a violation of the rules. So, so they were filling this bladder up under the water to give them more ballast. That's quite sophisticated. It's getting very sophisticated. But the Earl of Dunraven, who was sort of seen by history as a bad loser and a bit of yeah. a whinger, is he, probably he looking right. back showing the levels the Americans are going to. This is outrageous. Yeah. But just how upset they are, how offended they are. Yeah. Like, how dare you accuse uh, us. You, you, us. The New York Yacht Club, yeah. right, you're off the roll. Yeah, you're, you're, in your behaviour is outrageous. <laughs> how dare you besmirch our good reputation. Yeah. <laughs> the Earl of Dunraven's gone. This is seen as one of the lowest points once again between the British and the yeah. Americans, you know. It happens a few times. 
It's rescued by a guy who goes on to create basically what we could almost call a whole era of the America's Cup, and it would be called the Lipton era. The man that challenges next is from an Irish family that had moved to Scotland, so he's Scottish. And his name is Thomas Lipton. Right. Now, Thomas Lipton was born in a tenement in Glasgow in 1848. So poor was this family. Like this is as dirt poor in the Industrial Revolution, yes. you know, child labour. It's Glasgow. Yeah, uh, Glasgow, which was seen as the worst. Town. And it was seen at the time, the Glasgow slums were the worst of the worst in the world. Worse than London. Well, what, worse than what Charles Dickens was writing about. Well, with, when it came to Glasgow, the hardest drinkers in the world, they say they drank like that because it was a celebration to get to the end of another day. Yeah. And that was, it was like a reward for survival. Yeah, just not, That you would go out and yeah. get blasted. Uh, no, it was like. That's so, a tough town. So he's born into this family. He has three brothers and one sister. They all die in infancy. He's the only one that survives. So, you know, this is the tough town he is in. Yeah. He, from a very young age, he's working lots of odd jobs. He works as, on a ship as a cabin boy. He works as a shirt maker. He runs yeah. errands. He's doing everything. His family owns a very small store, but he's like literally sells some eggs and some milk and butter and stuff. It's sure. like it's a tiny milk bar kind of sort of store. He eventually makes enough money to go to America because he hears this is the land of opportunity, America. So he's yeah. like, I'm going to get to America. So he spends five years in America just working and traveling all over the country. He works in a tobacco plantation in Virginia as an accountant and bookkeeper at a rice plantation in South Carolina, as a door-to-door salesman in New Orleans, a farmhand in New Jersey, and finally as a grocery assistant in New York. Yeah, there's no work for home in those days, was there? It was really <laughs> zooming into a no Zoom meetings. You had to get out there yeah. and get amongst And them. he's like, you know, 16, 17 at this age. Yeah. Right? Like he's young, right? Yeah. And he's all off in his own in the world. He gets to know America very well. But the one thing he learns about in America is their love of marketing. He okay. sees that they're doing like this packaging and marketing, not just in ads, but marketing in that you actually package up butter and put a brand on it. Right. Rather than just saying, here's, here's some butter. Here's some butter. You start to brand like here's the and, best butter. Yeah, here's and you the... and you have images on it and everything. He, so he goes back to Glasgow and starts helping his parents run their shop. But he's now got all this knowledge yeah. that's not happening in in London of okay. okay selling to the middle class and the working class. You got to get the prices low, but you need to make it like package it up and yeah. get your reputation in order. And he starts yeah. doing this right. So while he's doing this, he starts opening his first proper shop. It's called Lipton's Market in Glasgow and it becomes very successful with this model. Over the next 20 years, he expands it into a chain of 300 stores all over Britain, everywhere. He's sleeping under the counter of the latest store whenever he's opening it and he's plowing the profits back in. He's just working his butt off. It's the Amazon model. He had done so well that he turned his attention to tea and he sees that tea is becoming important but it's too expensive for the working class. Yes. And he starts to think, well, if we could if I could sell it to working class and middle class families and make the price cheaper, we could clean up here. So he he secretly books a passage to Australia, but he actually gets off at Colombo in Ceylon at the time in what becomes Sri Lanka, and he visits the tea plantations for himself. So he's, do, he's a can-doer. I like this story. And he figures out 
that I can purchase the price of tea directly from here for half of what I was willing to pay in Scotland at wholesale. I can make an absolute killing. Also, rather than buying it from China, Ceylon is closer. Right. So he starts buying up these plantations in Sri Lanka and names his tea Lipton's Tea. Right. So he now controls the process from picking the tea to packaging it to selling it. He makes an absolute fortune. Incredible. And Lipton's Tea is still incredibly well-known, obviously, to this day. So he's selling it so much that he could not satisfy demand in his shops. Yes. So he starts packaging it up and selling it in other shops too as a brand. Right. Yeah. And this is where it becomes a, a byword for tea. You know, have a Lipton's yeah. and sort of became big. He's 40 years old at this point, right? He then meets, he does all this charity work because he's got no kids. He's just workaholic. He's grown up so dirt poor, yes. no education. He is just known for pouring all his profits back into the community. Yeah. So he just says, Jeez, I really like this story. Yeah, I'm giving free milk and cookies to all the kids in the neighbourhood. Come down to my factory and a line just forms. And just, or I'm buying this and buying that or I'm funding this. Unheard of in these times. Yeah, yeah. He's just the, everyone says he. this guy is the nicest man you will ever meet in real life yeah. too. Like it's not an act. He just is a yep. really decent guy. Alexandra, the Princess of Wales, meets him through this charity work and likes him so much that she says to her husband, Albert Edward, the Prince of Wales, who is the heir apparent to Queen Victoria, you got to meet this guy, you got to love him. And they all just fall in love with him. They think he is this charitable, self-made, rich guy. He's a good egg. But he's so charismatic and likeable, they all like him. Queen Victoria likes him. At Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee, in 1897, he gave £20,000 worth of dinners for the London poor, which is a huge amount of money at the time. So he just buys <laughs> buys meals for all the poor for yes. her thing. King Edward becomes king once Queen Victoria yes. does. And so he's friends with the king. He becomes king with King George. They go sailing together all the time. So this is a guy who's just rose to the absolute top. He then incorporates all his stores, shops and his various things and creates a business called Lipton's Limited, which he floats on the share market for the English public. And so he becomes even richer through that, but he loses control of the company. So he's still involved in advising it, but it's run by a board now because (sighs) of the share market. And it's not like he loses control in a negative way, like they, but they start to run it as a publicly listed company. So he's not the owner, sole owner. It's not his personal fife to me anymore. What he does do, though, is he doesn't sell... His American company. So he still owns Lipton Inc. in America, yep. which still owns all the tea plantations in Salon as well, which he's selling to the British business. <laughs> so he thinks, how do I build up my American side of the business? Yes. And he thinks, well, the America's Cup would be good publicity. Really? This could be a good way for me to kind of get my name out of there. It's a great marketing campaign and the cost of the ship and everything is still cheaper than a marketing campaign in America. I'll just challenge for the America's Cup. It's incredible. So he challenges for the America's Cup. Um, As a marketing device, for not, him not the, out of a deep-seated desire to win he loves the America's sail- Cup. He loves sailing and he'd like to win, but in his mind, it's he's a master of marketing. He's incredible. like, if I come over and do this, old. So he goes over to challenge. He challenges through the Royal 
Ulster Yacht Club of Belfast Island, so Northern Ireland, part of the British Empire, obviously. Um, he'd been blackballed from the more prestigious Royal Yacht Squadron, even though he's best mates with the royal family. <laughs> because Why? The, squad- the squadron members objected to his work in trade, that he was actually a worker and wasn't an aristocrat. He's not an so this is the point Jeez. in England. In America, it's entrepreneurs. Y- your it's, type is not welcome here. In, in America, it's the dying aristocracy being challenged by the merchants yes. and the people who have made money. And this is the aristocracy control the Royal Yacht Club. They don't let him in until two years before his death. That's how much they fight him off. But he's in America and he's like, this is great. This becomes an incredibly expensive race. So you've got J.P. Morgan. Yeah, funding the Americans, and you've got Thomas Lipton. So brands that we know now, sure. the original guys are both challenging this. Lipton calls every race he, he enters a ship called the Shamrock. Yes, and when he challenges more than once, he just adds like Shamrock one, Shamrock two, like right. that. So they race, and eventually the Americans basically win the three races. But it was seen as a great success because. Even though he lost, it was an incredibly expensive exercise. But he loses and he's so nice about it. Yes. He's so good-natured, charming. He's a good loser. He's, he's a good like, loser. I had a great time. He doesn't mind their cheating. I, yeah. I, I had a great time. It was wonderful to be here with you all. He entertains. He's, he stays for the whole yachting season in America yes. as well as the America's Cup. He didn't win the cup, but he entertains lavishly on his steam yacht, the Erin. His parties are so large that a special steamer is hired to just transport all the people to the yacht. <laughs> Throughout the young season, he had a fleet of yachts, tugs and tenders, all with a vivid shamrock on them, mm. on a yellow background on his thing. He'd just travel around New York Bay inviting all the rich and powerful on, meeting them all, doing media interviews, saying how much Fantastic. he loved America, how he's, t- he's spent five years in America. And they just print column after column of going, is this the nicest man in history? <laughs> and they love his story. Like, yeah, worked. Cause it's he's, the American he's story. The American you come over here, yeah. you make good. Yeah. It's the They've American gone from Lord Dunraven who's inherited all his money and is yeah, this kind of odd, aristocratic, foppish guy. And they suddenly got this Glaswegian, charming, salt of the earth, tough guy yeah. who's like really nice and loves America. Doesn't complain. Yeah. They talk about the fact that he's got heaps of money, he's got rare wines, he's got Congolese servants, which they love. Very Um, exotic. He's incredibly nice to the American women and they all talk about in the papers time again how he's the most eligible bachelor and could an American girl capture his heart. This generates an enormous amount of, this is like, he's like a 40-year-old multimillionaire bachelor. Yes. And he plays up to this world's most eligible bachelor tag he gets given. It gives In America, it's everywhere. Women are lining up to try and date him. Um, and he keeps playing up that, you know, oh, who knows, I might meet a girl. I'm looking, I'm always on the lookout. I want to settle down, you know. Now, he always says, like, publicly, oh, they say, why haven't you married? He goes, oh, no one's measured up to my mum. And they all love that line, right? The real reason he hasn't hooked up with anyone, and we don't find this out till after he passes away, he's in a 30-year relationship with one of his early shop assistants, William Love. Okay. And it's just not like ever spoken about and he just uses it as a marketing point. That wouldn't have been great for his American reputation. No, but he plays it the other way and everyone, you know, and everyone likes him so much. It's just like I can't convey how much they like it. So in 1899 he loses. In 1901 he says, oh, I'm coming back comes back with a shamrock two 
Shamrock Tui's testing it in Britain, getting it ready. Mm. And these are, he's got good boats. He's not like just yeah. showing up and trash. He's coming and to try yeah. and at least challenge. King Edward now, he's now the Prince of Wales, his friend, he's now King Edward II, he's invited to come down and sail on the yacht as it's been tested. During the trials one day, without warning, the whole rig collapses. The mast falls, all right. the wood sail comes down. It's quite dangerous. A couple of men go overboard. Luckily no one's hurt, but the king... He's seated in the companionway, so sort of that's where you have the stairs going down. Yes. And it just misses him. Could have killed him, the mask. Wow. So this is all in the newspapers. Apparently what happened was he was smoking at the time and when the mark fell, it knocked the cigar out of his mouth. <laughs> there you go. And the king very calmly lighted a fresh cigar and then said, is everyone okay, everyone good? <laughs> so they all love this story. Oh, right? this like, they all love The this. legend like, gets yeah, bigger and bigger. He goes over to America again. This time he's challenging a boat called the Columbia as the defender as the boat. It wins the first race by a minute and 20 seconds, the second by three minutes and 35 seconds, yeah. and the third race by 41 seconds. So Shamrock 2 has lost 3-0, but... Close the gap. There's seconds. It's the yeah. closest America's Cup up to this point. So it shows you that Lipton, even though he's like jocular yeah. and friendly. Yeah. He is over there doing this. Feels like it's almost time for a rule change. <laughs> <laughs> the Shamrock 2 to show where boats have got to, yeah. the minute the race is over, it gets broken up and sold for scrap because yeah. it's not useful it's, for anything yeah. else, right? So they're just spending a fortune. Uh, before he goes back to England, Lipton's elected an honorary member of the New York Yacht Club. And he said, I'm very exceptionally complimented, which I highly appreciated. Yeah. So he's instantly like, he's back in 1903, two years later. This is the most expensive cup challenge in history. Yes. These are all the best boats you can imagine. Like they got like 60, 70 people. And these are huge sailing yeah. boats, not like the ones we see today. Once again, the Shamrock 3 loses in three, but it's very close. So there's then get to the point where in 913, they're working out the challenge for 1914. <laughs> yes. There's the big discussion about we need to change the rules because these boats are costing a fortune and then aren't ever used again. Yes. It's silly. So a new rule comes in, which is called the universal rule, which basically starts to say that there's some rules around it that make it so you have to build boats that are just a bit more sturdy, a bit more seaworthy, and a bit less expensive. They're a bit smaller. Right. So it's the move towards getting more smaller boats. It sounds like another rule that can be flouted though. Yeah, me, it's you know, how much I, that cost? Well, <laughs> the Americans are all the British and Americans are both quite happy with this one, weirdly, because they're just like it's getting very it's getting silly. And some of these boats are becoming almost unsafe, like they can barely actually yeah. like they capsize and all this sort of stuff. So 1914 Lipton's challenged again and while they're sailing to the America's Cup for 1914, um, Germany declares war on Britain. So they're meant to meet up with Vanderbilt, who's the Commodore of the New York Yacht Club by this point, and they don't have a radio or anything, so they don't know that war's broken out. Okay, yeah. So they're crossing across, and when Vanderbilt shows up to meet Lipton in Bermuda, all the navigational aids had been moved from local reefs so that Germans couldn't get through, wouldn't know what where the reefs were, so you almost crash on that. And then when he arrives, the shore battery, the gun shoots a warning shot. At the Americans who are coming to meet Lipton. Uh, so it's all called off. The war stops it till 1920. Yes. Lipton challenges again. This point the Americans want to move it to Rhode Island, Newport, Rhode Island, away from New York. What's their motivation? New York Harbour's busy, smaller, right, yeah. condensed. 
they want to be more open waters, better sailing. It yeah. will be better sailing, sure. Lipton says, no way. <laughs> New, I'm here for New York, you yeah. know. I'm here to promote my tea and everything, you <laughs> well, know. Like, yeah, and tea, is it is going nuts at this point. So this one is incredibly close. He comes within one race of taking the trophy home and the Americans win that final race. So suddenly it's very, very close because the Shamrock are four it wins the first two races and the Americans just that's incredible. freaking out. Now that's – you've They're got their full attention. Goodyear chairman Paul W. Litchfield at this point, he starts a tradition of naming their blimps after America's Cup winners. So the Goodyear blimp is always – each one is named okay. after an America's Cup winner. Lipton comes in, in 1930 and challenges – it's finally been moved to Newport, Rhode Island. It's a big blow for the city's economy, but it's better for the racing. And it stays at Road, Newport, Rhode Island for 53 years yeah. until a yacht called Australia 2 comes swoops. along and swoops in. So these are, the, these are these ships built to these things. They're called the J-class yachts, and they're seen as the most beautiful yachts that ever raced in the America's Cup. Lipton's 79 when he challenges with the Shamrock 4 in 1930. The ship called the Enterprise was chosen to defend. And Lipton loses this one 4-0. It's his fifth loss mm. in a row. And at this point he'd become so beloved for how graceful he was as a losing that the Americans even felt bad that they he had never won one. So he's challenged five times. Yeah. Lipton joke, I drank my tea from the saucer for the reason that I could not lift the cup. That was the quote he <laughs> gave. So they all love him. A letter appears in the newspaper editorial in the New York Times from the movie star uh, Cowboy and vaudeville performer Will Rogers. Oh, yes. And he says, what do we say to this? Let everybody send a dollar apiece for a fund to buy a loving cup for Sir Thomas Lipton, bigger than the one he would have got if he had won, contributed to by everyone that really admires a fine sportsman. He says, send it to, I suggest, a Lipton Cup fund in care of Mayor Walker in New York. Let Jimmy buy it and present it on behalf of everything. So that this is the call. Um, money floods in. The mayor says, all right, I'll do that. No problem. Letters flood in. And within 10 days, $16,000 US, which is like almost a million dollars, yeah. has come in with Americans just all sending in single dollar bills. Incredible. Because they love Lipton so much. Lipton sails home and says he'd be back for another challenge. And he returns two months later to be able to collect this cup that they'd bought for him. It was designed by Tiffany's. It's made of 18 karat gold and stood 18 inches high. What? It said on the plinth, it says, in the name of the hundreds and thousands of Americans and well-wishers of Sir Thomas Johnston Lipton. So that, this is how much the Americans love yes. him. The cost of his second place finishes was tens of millions of dollars in today's money. So these five challenges he did. Mm. He always knew and then people, have, historians have looked at this and said, it's far below what he would have to have paid in advertising fees. Yes. Because in this time, his tea company becomes the biggest in America yeah. and he owns that. And among other things, his image in full yachting uniform appears on his tea products well into the 1990s, yeah. long after people realised he had anything to do with the America's Cup. Though he actually tried to win, some people say if he'd actually won, he probably wouldn't have had the business success yes. that he would have had. A year on from his fifth challenge, Thomas Lipton passes away at 83 and never gets the challenge again. He's a five-time loser, the most ever, yeah. but the most loved. He bequeaths his entire fortune to his native city of Glasgow for charitable works. Unbelievable. 
What a and great story. So that brings us to the end of the Lipton era. Where we're going to get into next when we come back is the last of the English challengers. And we're not far away from when a little nation called Australia decides to get involved. Oh, here we go. Thank you, Titus O'Reilly. As you know, I've been shamelessly plugging our membership program, Bazaar Plus. And one of the key bits that people are loving is you get an extra episode every week. Here's a short outtake from our bonus episode. Who's your favourite sailor? Of all time? Yeah. Probably Bullimore for me. Really? Tony Bullimore. The one that got lost. The Englishman who upended his boat below the 40th parallel or whatever it was. Yeah. Took five navies to go out and get him. Find him. And even then he was belligerent. He was annoyed. What took your time? <laughs> Didn't it cost I've like, been freezing down here. It cost millions of dollars. It cost millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's a crazy law, isn't it? That you have to, if a beacon goes off, you gotta. You gotta go. You think that's a crazy law? <laughs> <laughs> if you get in a boat and try and sail solo around the world yeah. and you're down in the Antarctic waters, good luck. Yeah. You're on your own. Yeah. yeah, seriously. That's how far out do you have to be before you say let him let him go? Anywhere west of Roddy <laughs> of of of, of Rottenest, or south of King Island. Yeah. I think the more Mal- if you're in there, we'll come and get you. We call it the Malloy line. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a short clip from our bonus episode each week for members who join our Bazaar Plus program. If you're interested in signing up to that and hearing more of it. Simply go to the link in the show notes or go to bazaarplus.com.